Dennis. Thanks, Scott. Hi. Appreciate it. Scott, thanks again for that lovely introduction. Um, it was very kind of you. And also, um, thank you to President Rich. Thank you to all the faculty members that are here, folks from the community that I recognize some warm faces that it's a blessing to see. And uh, honestly, most of all, gosh, I just now saw the second tier. Most of all, um, thanks to you, the students. Thanks for showing up. I know you get a credit for it, but thanks for showing up anyway. Um, Scott talked about Sammy in the front row. Yeah, that kind of amazed me too. So in thinking about today and in thinking about what I was going to talk about, um, it was kind of overwhelming because when I read, and I've got a little thing I want to read out to you. <clears throat> it's a little bit of what Scott talked about. The Oscar Schmidt lecture series, when Scott asked me to talk, I was happy to say yes. But after I put down the phone and I pondered on it for a few weeks, I thought, boy, I better find out what this Oscar Schmidt lecture series is about. And so when I did my homework, it was fascinating. I reside now with my wife and daughter in Columbus, Ohio. And so the family come from, the Schmidt family come from Cincinnati. And they've actually got a, a butcher and a beef background as part of their business. And that'll circle into my story when you, when you hear it later. And so when I read about the free enterprise system, I started to get really excited. Because ever since I've left Sterling, professionally, the only thing I've done are in the capital markets. I was fascinated by Wall Street when I was your age, sitting in those seats. And the idea of the capital markets, the idea of working for a company, or heavens forbid, the idea of starting a company, really, really got my juices going. So when I did the homework on the Oscar Schmidt lecture series, I figured, hey, I'll get up there and I'll talk about free enterprise. And if you dig into free enterprise and what that means, it really just talks about entrepreneurialism. It talks about capitalism, which although, and I'll get into the Irish part in a minute, although I wasn't born and raised here, I feel American. I am an American citizen today. And there's nowhere greater on the face of the planet than America to be in business. And so I said, you know what? I'll get up there and I'll talk about starting a company, working in a company, and building a business. And the particular business I'm in, I mentioned I was fascinated by Wall Street. I got straight into it as soon as I got out of college. And it's the investment business. And in particular, it's in the money management side of the business. That requires us to analyze companies every day. I've been analyzing companies and reading income statements and balance sheets for the last 27 years. And so as I'm getting excited about sharing that with you, I'm starting to picture your faces. And I'm going, they probably don't want to hear about income statements and balance sheets. <laughs> now, maybe some of them do, but the majority. So I kept thinking, what service could I be? What value added could I be for you in about 45 minutes to where almost everybody can get their own nugget? You know, we're often told, don't be selfish. I'm going to encourage you today to be a little selfish. Don't think about your next class. Don't think about who's sitting next to you. Just focus on what you're going to hear and commit to yourself now, I'm going to find a nugget in this guy's story that I'm going to apply to my life. Right there, you win. And by the way, selfishly, I get to win too, because my goal is that you get a nugget. So I'm not going to talk about income statements and balance sheets. Good news. So as you probably noticed, I'm not going off notes. 
I don't like to. I'd rather just speak from the heart. So I'll wander a little bit. That's kind of like the Irishman in me. And it's really a story I'm going to share with you. But what I want you to do is, inside this story, I want you to see yourself. There's nothing very sophisticated about the story. It's really simple with a lot of old-fashioned ground rules. Ground rules that, to be honest with you, you probably heard your great-grandparents, your grandparents, and your parents, and you're hearing your professors tell you today. A lot of the old rules still work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break my story up into three parts. The first part is Ireland. It would be hard to tell this story if I don't talk about Ireland. The second part is leaving Ireland and coming to America, and above all places, coming to Kansas. And then not only Kansas, but coming to Sterling, Kansas. How does an Irishman, 17 years of age, leave Dublin, Ireland and end up in Sterling? So I've got to cover that. I'm going to talk about my years at Sterling and the profound impact it had on me and how both Ireland and Sterling created a foundation in me that is allowing me, I'm circling back now, to participate in free enterprise. It's those foundations that are allowing me to not only build a company, but as you probably read in my bio, our company now manages almost a billion dollars from zero. So we'll start with Ireland. I grew up the third son, third child of a, by the way, let me just segue for a minute. There's a thing about the Irish accent. And the most noticeable thing is we drop the H when it follows a T. So I just said I was the third child. <laughs> so that's still funny in the year 2017. <laughs> Can you only imagine in 1986, pre-internet, nobody, we have a lot of emigration in our country, but most people go and don't come back, especially back then. Nobody came back and said, hey, listen, you might want to start pronouncing your H's when it follows a T. So I arrive, and more often than not, someone would, we'd be doing something, kidding around, and someone would say, I'm first, and someone else would say, I'm second. And then I would say, I'm third, and everyone would laugh. <laughs> so there's a lot of lost in translation. I have a few more stories I'll share with you as we go. So third son of a, in a farming family. My dad was a farmer. And what's an important part of the story, before he started farming, he went to college and got a degree. He came out of college, and he wasn't just your traditional farmer. He farmed for himself, but he also farmed for other folks. In the farming for other folks, one of those entities was a place called Newbridge College. Now, Newbridge College is not your normal high school. I say college back then in Ireland. Certain boarding schools called themselves colleges, even though they were um, educating high schoolers. This college, I don't know if you, you're probably all too young, but have you ever saw the movie Dead Poets Society? Folks in the room that are my age probably know it. That was like our high school. There is no middle school. You go in at 12, and you come out at 18. Baptism by fire. We had study hall. If you think you had it tough, put your seatbelt on. We had study hall till 9.45 every single night of the week. And we had class on Saturdays, just as a bonus. We wore a uniform, and the boarding students had to stay there, and they only got out of there once or twice a year, summer and Christmas, and maybe a couple of other holidays. Thankfully, I was a commuter. About 10% of the uh, students were commuters. And so I commuted, but the lessons I learned in that school, the disciplines I learned in that school, the tough lessons I learned in that school were priceless. But the reason I mention my dad's farming and that school is, had I not went there, the opportunity would never have crossed my path to get a soccer scholarship to the United States. So it's 1986, it's the spring, I'm in Ireland, 
and wonderful family. My mom's a stay-at-home mom, taught me so much about life, prepared me so much for where I am today. My dad is farming. My sister and brother and I are all doing our thing in school. But while our home life was wonderful, the country, which by the way, Ireland today is doing incredibly well. One of the strongest GDPs, nearly $300 billion in GDP, one of the best recovered European countries from the financial crisis. It's also one of the largest exporters of software in the world. Well, none of that existed in our time. In our time, in 1986, all through the 70s and 80s, we had unbelievably high unemployment, unbelievably high interest rates, and on top of all that, most of you are too young to know, but we had our own terrorism and strife in Northern Ireland. There was a long battle in Northern Ireland that went on for over 100 years, and during the 70s and 80s, that battle was at some of its nastiest levels and influenced the whole community. We didn't know any different, but growing up in that, I got to tell you, it toughened you up. Um, my senior year, I was wondering, what am I going to do? I grew up in a family that always prayed, and my mom taught me some of the greatest lessons about prayer. And I remember praying, I remember thinking, what in the world? I know people that are way smarter than me. They're way more accomplished from way better families, or at least I'm thinking that. And they can't get jobs. How in the world am I going to get a job? And so I'm grinding my way through, and I'm walking off a soccer field, and I get offered a soccer scholarship to America. I get offered a soccer scholarship to Sterling, Kansas. Now, I got to tell you, a lot of my peers and a lot of my friends were emigrating. Um, over half of the high school graduating classes in most schools in the 1980s, over half of them left the country. Think about that. Left the country. By the way, I just realized it's this mic I'm speaking into, not that one. <laughs> um, in leaving the country, it created this void, and a lot of writers went on to write about it, and they called it the brain drain of the 80s. So I got offered this scholarship. I said yes. The folks said, well, you got to get your parents' approval first. I said, oh, they're going to say yes. I told, went home and told my parents. My mom started to cry. And my dad held his hands up like he just scored a touchdown. <laughs> For real, just like that. Because they both instinctively knew, this kid really means it. This is going to happen. We got all the letters with all the information. Again, I can't emphasize enough, nothing's easy. It's pre-internet. I know, I'm that old. Um, when I got a letter of all the things we had to have, I started to worry again. I started to get uncomfortable. I started to be fearful. And so many of the parts of my story I want you to get, manage your fear. It's perfectly okay to be fearful, but manage it. Because if you don't manage it, it can really impede some of the decisions you make. So I started to really worry. I stayed prayerful. I stayed optimistic. I kept my glass half full. And I worked my way down through the list of obstacles. One of them was they wanted to know what my ACT score was. Well, if you're in Ireland as 1986, you do not know what an ACT is, I promise you. You don't even know what it means. We have a whole different system. So in response, I sent my Leaving Cert results. And likewise, everyone over here said, what's Leaving Cert results? So we had to get through some of those technical difficulties which we were able to work our way through. By the time I worked through the bottom of the list and got all the hurdles out of the way, I was left with two hurdles. Foreign students, I don't know if it's the case today, foreign students at the time at not only Sterling College in Kansas, but colleges all over America, sometimes would end up being a burden on the university. They would come over ill-equipped, and maybe in some cases they shouldn't have came. So the, 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 the college was sensibly trying to say, look, you need to come with a round-trip ticket, translated. If we want to send you home, we can send you home. <laughs> um, we also want you to come with substantial resources and have enough on deposit at a local bank so you can support yourself. Well, I just described the economy. 
I couldn't do either. So off to the most undesirable job you could find in Ireland, at a slaughterhouse, at a meat factory. Remember what I said about the Oscar Schmidt family and watches me? Stay with me as we weave through these stories. You can't make this stuff up. So off I go and I take this job at the meat factory. I know you guys are young. Some of you probably don't feel young, but you are. You're very young. And sometimes you hear stories from your parents or people that are older than you, and they talk about walking 20 miles to school and 30 miles home and all those stories. Well, this is real. It was a brutal job. I rode seven or eight miles to the slaughter factory, worked in it, and this was my only hope. It was my only way. I decided, hey, listen, here's my options. If I don't do this, it's automatic failure. I don't make it to America. Off I go, I spend that summer working in a meat factory. It was brutal. I talked about the challenges in Ireland. I talked about the stuff up in Northern Ireland. There were some really undesirables working at this place. By example, my second Friday when I was due to get my paycheck, I got cornered by four guys that laid out, very organized, laid out the scenario where the, it was a protection racket and I had to give over my paychecks for this amount of time and they'd protect me at the meat factory. Keep in mind, everyone's going around with a belt full of knives. So I had to pay a lot of attention, but secretly I knew I was only there for the summer to get enough money to come to America, but I couldn't tell anyone that, so, but I couldn't give them my check. So I had to dig deep. I had to persevere. I had to go, you know what? I'm going to manage my fear. I'm going to work my way through this. I do not know the outcome, but I know if I don't do this, I don't go to America. I come home one day, and this is really important. Your parents are so important in your lives. Probably most of you know that, but all of you need to know it. Sometimes it's the sacrifices and the vision they have for you that doesn't include them. You can't measure how powerful that is. I came home one day and I'd had it. The meat factory had won, I had lost. I used to come in the side door of the house just out of humility because you'd smell so bad. And my mom would always have a pair of Levi's and a white t-shirt in the garage. And this particular day I came in, garage, garage, this particular day I came in, my mom said to me, I, was, I, I wasn't doing so good. And I said, mom, I quit, I'm done. Do you know what she said to me? I'm her youngest, I'm her third child. <laughs> she loves me, now that I'm a parent, I know what she meant. You know what she said? She says, fine, you can quit, but just know this, no America. And she knew I was going to emigrate. Now, folks, that's selfless. That's sacrifice. I go back to work the next day. I get my stuff together, and I head to Sterling College. Now, remember the requirements. It's good to go by the rules, by the way. I'm not telling you to break rules. But be open to looking at options. Because <laughs> sometimes the rules will box you in. So I didn't arrive with a round-trip ticket. I didn't arrive with substantial resources on a deposit at a local bank. I arrived with a borrowed suitcase, a one-way ticket, and after getting my, um, the, the money for the, the, the one-way ticket and getting you know, two or three of everything, you know, jeans and T-shirts and soccer gear, um, what was left was $127. So off I go. Um, this summer I was leaving, other than the work, was a lot of fun because it was a novelty back then. It was a big deal. Today, it's not such a big deal, but back then, it was big. It's in all the local papers. Off I go, I come to Sterling, and I arrive, and I was supposed to arrive on a Monday. 
with my best buddy Sammy, who's sitting here in the front row, and he was organized. I wasn't quite as organized. He arrived on time and got through all of freshman orientation week. I had a little snafu with my, my, my student visa, and there was a confusion on dates. And I didn't arrive till the Friday. I arrived on Friday, so remember, I've missed the organized period I was supposed to be here for. I arrive in Kansas City, I get my borrowed suitcase off the conveyor belt, and I roll out. And remember, I'm 17, I've seen some movies, and everything in America is just impressing the daylights out of me. And I walk out and I go, look, it's a yellow cab. <laughs> <laughs> and I go over to this first yellow cab, and I feel, I'm going, you know what, you gotta portray a certain image. So I puff up my chest. Now remember, I weighed in at 127 pounds freshman. That's how big you are a freshman in high school. That's how I weighed in my freshman year here. So I roll out to the yellow cab and I say to the guy, cab. He was already stopped, but I just wanted to hail him. <laughs> and he comes over and I get my suitcase and I plonk it into the back of the, the yellow cab. And I jump in the back and I say, Sterling, please. <laughs> you know why that's funny. <laughs> and he said, this is the first time I've ever heard this phrase, say what now? <laughs> and I said, Sterling. He goes, Sterling where? I said, Sterling, Kansas. And so you can imagine the conversation back and forth. Five minutes later, on the hood of his yellow cab, he's got a map of greater Kansas City. And he says, son, if you can find Sterling, I'll take you there. <laughs> Sheepishly, I get my borrowed suitcase back out of the car and go back inside and start dialing uh, toll-free back to the campus. It was my fault, because I arrived on the wrong day. And a lady, I love this name, a lady, Dennis will remember this name, a lady by the name of Melody Rose picked me up. And she couldn't have been sweeter. And again, everything's a novelty to me. I think everything's better in America. And even the name, I'm going, Melody Rose. That's cool. <laughs> I even thought that was cool. So Melody Rose picks me up, and off we go to Sterling. I get down to Sterling. And remember, I've arrived at the end of freshman orientation. I connect with my buddy Sammy and all the rest of the guys on the team, and now I'm getting to meet everybody for the first time. And we're like a, a, a whole bunch of bees. We're all just moving in, a, in, in, in like a group, and there's like 22 of us. And it was the first year of the soccer program. There was no soccer before it. A gentleman by the name of Robert Lotz and his wife Beth, who I'm eternally grateful for. Without them, I wouldn't be here. There's a lot of people. Without them, I wouldn't be here. But I would not be here without Robert and Beth. They recruited us, but I'd never met them in person. So we go out the first night, go to the freshman dance, stay out really late, we're acclimating energy. You know, you're 17, you've all the energy in the world. You wake up Saturday morning, and Sammy and I chose, which by the way, hopefully you'll find little nuggets throughout this story. Sammy and I connected with each other the summer before we came here, and we decided purpose, on purpose to not room together so it wouldn't be like an Irish clique, and it broaden our horizons and we'd meet other people, which I think was really, if you think about it, as a 17 year old, that was a pretty good idea. Think about that. So Sammy has his roommates, I have my roommates. When I walked into that room for the first time, I was just telling Scott and Scott and David this earlier today. I walked into the room and it was a baseball, <clears throat> a baseball player, a football player, and a basketball player. Brian Temple, Barry Warner, and Brett Gregg. Brett Gregg was six foot seven. He was on the basketball team from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I walked in, and again, the culture shock is huge. I mean, literally, I was years going, huh? Like, there were so many things in America that was new to me. Well, here's an example. I walk in, all three guys are sitting in their boxer shorts. <laughs> They're all tanned and buffed because the summers here are beautiful and sunny. 
They're high school stars in their sports, they're working out, and they want to show everyone how, much, how good they look. I, on the other hand, would make you know, the Pillsbury Doughboy look like he had a tan. <laughs> I was so white. I'm not kidding. And I roll in with my suitcase, and the last thing my mom packed were pajamas. And these guys are looking like you know, Adonis's, just sitting there. And one of them has got a cup, and he's spitting in it. I'm like, what is he doing? He's spitting in a cup. We don't have chew in Ireland. Mother of God. Right? So we get through that, do the first night out, and the next morning someone pounds on the door and says, Irishman, your coach is on the phone. And again, back then, the guys will all remember there was a hall phone, no cell phones, and you run down the hall. By the way, I never took the pajamas out of the bag. They stayed in it. <laughs> Love you, Mom, but these are not going to make it. They were pushed down. And so I roll down the hall as the coach, and he says, hey, Tony, welcome to America. I'm delighted you're here. You're the only kid I haven't met. Myself and Beth are going to roll over to campus, and we'd love to go for a walk through campus with you. And I go, boy, that sounds great. And it's Saturday, and two days we're starting on Monday. And he said, I'd like to see you before I see you on the field. So I call Sammy. The two of us say, you know, kind of straighten our heads up. And out we go on Saturday morning, we meet the coach and his wife, lovely people, and we're walking through, it's September, it's ideal weather, it's just idyllic. We're walking through this beautiful campus, and everything seems perfect until they're asking us questions about what was it like leaving your family? What was it like flying over? Um, I tell them the Kansas City incident, and we're just having a good time. And Beth says to me, oh, it was freshman dance last night, and it was a party. Did you enjoy it? I said, Beth. <laughs> The crack over here is phenomenal. <laughs> she looks at me, she looks at Sammy, and I think I'm thinking fast, I'm clever. I better react quick, because she's probably mad that we stayed out late and the coach is, and I'm thinking it must be curfew, something that's freaked them out. It must be curfew or something. So we think we'll make it better. We respond with, oh, whoa, whoa. don't worry, we won't do it during season. So to her, we have just confirmed that her husband has recruited two crackheads from Dublin. <laughs> here, here's what happened. Lost in translation. We have our own language, the Gaelic language. It's just like any other language, like French, like German. In the Gaelic language, there's a word called crack, C-R-A-I-C, and it translates into literally the word fun. I had just said, the fun over here is great, the fun here is wonderful. And so there was this gap of lost in translation yet again, whether it's turd or crack, <laughs> to where you got to kind of work through it. Because if you give up too quick, you know what would have happened. <laughs> Imagine if the conversation ended there. We went on to develop wonderful relationships with our coaches. We actually ended up babysitting their kids. They went back to Ireland and stayed at our homes and recruited more kids from Ireland. And so it really worked out great. College years were great. Um, I woke up Monday morning. I'm watching the clock here. I woke up Monday morning and I figured, okay, my next responsibility. And even though I was young, I always had this mental list in my head. And sometimes I used to write it out. What do I need to do next? What do I need to do next? And the important things, you got to keep them at the top of your list. The commitments you make to your family, to yourselves, to your peers, to your future bosses. You'll make a lot of commitments. Focus on the top ones. Someone taught me a long time ago, you know, if you've got 10 worries, 
Fix number one, two, and three, and four through 10 will just kind of disappear. Focus on your big ones. Guess what I was thinking about all weekend? I've got to return the suitcase. Mrs. Walsh up the street, whose sons had emigrated and one of them had come home, had lent us the suitcase. That saved me some money. And so I'm thinking Monday morning, I got to go return the suitcase. I roll over to the post office and the student union. I, I don't know what it looks like. I'm going to tour the campus today. I'm excited. But I don't know how much it's changed. But back then, it was kind of on this corner. And it was a half door, like a barn door. And the half door was closed and the top half was open. And I walk over. Is it still like that? Cool. Cool. Well, now picture this. Anyone here work at the post office? No, no, that's all right. Boy, who's running the post office? <laughs> anyway, so I roll over there, and there's this lovely girl, and she's leaning on the doors. And again, I'm just enamored by everything, and I roll over, and I've got a suitcase underneath. She doesn't see it. And I said, hi. And she says, hi, where are you from? She started talking about Ireland and everything. After a little bit of picnic talk, I said, hey, I need your help. I need to mail this to Ireland. And I reached down, and I come up with a suitcase. It's got holes in it. It's got masking tape on it. And she goes, you want to do what? You, you, you want to mail this suitcase to Ireland? I mailed the suitcase to Ireland. I'm sure she thought I was a Martian. And that cost me 60 bucks. Doesn't take a math major to figure out. I came at 127, spent a little money over the weekend, spent 60 bucks on the suitcase. Basically, I'm broke, and it's day three in America. <laughs> Otherwise known as my third day, right? <laughs> I'll stop doing that. So Tuesday morning, I get a job, and I get two jobs. One on Tuesday and one on Wednesday, the maintenance department and the cafeteria. It's important in my story for you to know this, because some of you might be facing hurdles just like this or similar. I had no work permit. I couldn't work off campus. I didn't have a tax ID. I was truly a foreign student, which is what I should have been. The good news is I could get jobs all over campus. The good news is I loved working. The bad news is minimum wage was it. That was my choice. And so I did everything you could imagine, maintenance-wise and cafeteria-wise. And I mean everything. I might be the guy mowing the grass when you're walking by. I might be the guy shoveling the snow when you're going in. And I was the guy with the hairnet serving you carrots and green beans. So you name it, I did it. And honestly, I was pretty happy doing it. Because I'm like, I can't believe it. I've got all the work I can do. The downside was the whole minimum wage thing. And so a few months, a few semesters in, I forget exactly when, there's a gentleman by the name of Bill Edwards, and he was definitely a gentleman. Don't know if he's around today, but he was running the finance department. There you go, Bill. He's running the finance department. And I remember going over to Bill and saying, hey, Bill, you sent a bill home to my parents. And I was on the phone with them the other day, and I think they're, they're kind of disillusioned. They didn't realize. Now, remember, I'm just their kid that has left on a one-way ticket. I call home collect once a month. And so, I said, is there any way you could not send them the bill? <laughs> now, I can imagine Bill going, I know what I would do if I was him today. What do you mean not send them the bill? And I said, here's the deal I'll do. I will work like no one you've ever seen before. I will work as hard and as much as I possibly can. You keep 90% and I'll keep 10. And I remember him looking at me like, really? And so minimum wage, I looked it up last night, was 335 in 1986. Do you know what 10% of 3.35 is? The only number I can't pronounce. <laughs> yes, I was making 33 cents an hour. And so, but I was happy to do it because I knew any of the additional bills and costs of being here was gonna get taken care of. Because one of those goals, remember I told you about, 
You've got to start to create habits so you can achieve your goals. And you've got to have that moment in the mirror where you go, are my habits advancing me or are they holding me back? One of my goals was, I am going to graduate debt-free. I can't describe it right now because I'm only a freshman, but I'm going to graduate debt-free. I also went on to connect with people in the community. I got to see Mickey here earlier, and she just brought such a smile to my face. There were so many people in the community that were kind to us. There was a sign-up board in one of the um, um, dorms that you could sign up for a family to adopt you. And I walked up, and some guys were signing up. And I would see them look, 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 and they put their name down. They put their name down once. I walked up, and I said, wait a minute. It doesn't say how many times you can put your name. <laughs> and by the way, that's a habit. That's a glass half full habit. I thought, why not? They'll tell me if it's wrong, but I'll sign up for them all. <laughs> we used to go over to Gene and Mickey's house, and here's something very important, and this goes for the faculty, for management, for students, for people in the community. You know this instinctively, but we all don't practice it enough. Don't judge. Be really, really, really slow to judge. Some of my greatest memories, my fondest memories. Kathy Glynn is in the house tonight, today. I mean, she was such a special person in my life. She was such a special professor. But what she did more than anything is she just never judged. Mickey and Jean, they never judged. They let us over to their house, and they fed us. And remember, we could eat like we were going to the electric chair. <laughs> I mean, we could eat. They allowed us to interact with their kids. And that opened up more and more doors. So as I worked my way through college, played soccer all over the place, we had a lot of fun, visited a lot of places, traveling was a novelty. I used to have a thing in my room with a, with a pin in all the states I'd been in. And as the years went on, I get to my senior year. I'm fast forwarding because I'm watching the clock. As I get to my senior year, I'm now having a deja vu moment, very like my senior year in high school. And here's the problem. I'm about to graduate with a business degree, specialty in finance, from Stirling College, Kansas. And Ireland was just about to have one of the greatest booms in modern history in their economy. But I don't know that, because it's 1990. And I have no work permit. The only thing I can do is mow grass and work in a cafeteria. I know I've got to go get a work permit. And I've got to go get a job. And the basic rules back then, immigration-wise, if you can get a work permit for 12 months, get into your field of excellence, your specialty, and then prove you're better than anyone else they can find for that job, you can be fast-tracked for a green card. Sounds easy? It was quite tough. Especially in 1986, pre-internet. The foreign department here on campus, I think I overwhelmed them with questions. Then I went to Kansas City a half a dozen times and got turned away by immigration offices. And then I'm on campus mowing grass, and my boss at the time was a gentleman by the name of Quentin Kilgore. And Quentin, I went up to him and I said, hey, Quentin, I need time off on Thursday. He says, you're the only kid that always asks for overtime. You ask for as much time as you can get. What do you need time off for? I said, I'm going to go see this Dole guy. And he stops me. He says, that's Senator Bob Dole. And he told me the wonderful things about Senator Bob Dole. I just didn't know. I didn't have the reverence I should have had for him. And I said, well, that hammers home my point even more, that he's even that more important, because i got to go meet with him. And Quentin laughs. And Quentin liked me. He wasn't making fun of me, but he says, you're not going to meet with Senator Bob Dole. I said, well, why not? Don't miss this, guys. Why not, right? You can try. You see the same pattern showing up? Why not? So off I go. I go in the library. 
by the way, nice new library. I said that to David, and David goes, well, new, 1995. I hadn't seen the library. <laughs> so I go in the old library, and I type up my story, and I put up as best I can. It was back in the whiteout days, and I was whiting out, and I was doing this, and I get my letter. And in that letter, I also attached the name of lots of folks. Don't miss this. Lots of folks in the community, the president of the university, my favorite professors, the Kathy Glens of the world, my soccer coach, pillars of the community. I put all their names in. I asked for their permission, and I put references in there. And I wrote up my story, and I stood in line. If it was post 9-11, I would have been arrested, because I stalked the guy. And I stood in line, and he's working his way through the crowd, and the, the magnificent moment really did overwhelm me. Because I'm thinking, I'm just going to go meet a guy. There was uh, TV cameras and crews here. I'm thinking, dear Lord, this is a big deal. But I still got to go get my, get my questions answered. And I see him with an entourage of people, and someone from the business community would come, and he'd send someone from business, and someone from education would come. And I'm like, oh no, he's going to pass me off. Well, those people were probably excellent and well-equipped to answer my question. But in my head, I'm going, I've got to go to the source. I am only going to the source, and nothing is stopping me. Because that's what I needed to do. Everyone told me, don't. Everyone, actually, they laughed. I go to the source, I reach in, lunge in, and Senator Dole holds a pen in his hand from the war. And he reaches this hand down like this, and you want to talk about the grace of God. You want to talk about serendipity. You can't make this up. I think because folks like Senator Bob Dole, they do so many events, every now and again, they're looking for a little humor, probably, just something different in their day. And that's what I was at that moment. Because he said, son, it's the middle of Kansas. It's really hot. Where are you from? I tell him my story. And I keep saying, don't hand me off to your guys. And he starts to laugh. And I got more time than anyone else with him. It was probably only about seven or eight minutes. But I rattled off my story a million miles an hour. This isn't an Irish accent. What I had 30 years ago was an Irish accent. <laughs> he, he probably had a hard time understanding me. But guess what he finished with? He said, son, if everything you say is in this letter and everything is true, we're going to help you. He called over a guy. He goes, don't worry. Called over a guy. <laughs> handed the letter to that guy. The following Wednesday, I was at INS in Kansas City. I had to do my interview. I had to hold my own water. Stamp, 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 got my work permit. Then I took that work permit, and I went to Kathy when we talked about our senior paper, and there was lots of choices about the senior paper. And I said, I want to write about banks and bank holding companies. I was fascinated. Ireland had four or five banks and bank holding companies. Lots of branches, but four or five holding companies. America had over 15,000 holding companies that were banks. It was the Giannini's and the Mellons that came to this country and started banks, and the free enterprise, and the capitalism, and the environment that encouraged the opportunity to open a bank on every corner. That was unprecedented. Remember, if you don't look beyond your horizon, you don't realize how blessed we are. And so I couldn't help but say, Kathy, I want to write about that. She says, Tony, that's not one of the choices. I said, yeah, but I want to write about it. She says, it's not one of the choices. I wrote about it. Now, in order to get all the information, I couldn't just Google banks and bank holding companies. It was a tough task. 800 numbers, yellow pages. I'm working in the cafeteria, the same cafeteria that probably didn't seem like a glamorous place to work. We got to talk to our bosses. All of us would sit around after banquets, and we wouldn't just talk to students, we talked to old people like me now. And we would talk to our bosses, and we'd ask them questions. And I think they got a kick out of us, too. And so one of my bosses, Bonnie Theergartner, was the boss of the cafeteria here. And it was Pioneer Food Services used to run it then. And her boss, Bill Sinclair, he was there. And we're sitting after a banquet one night, and I said, man, this paper I'm writing, it's so hard to get enough 
um, 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 individual banks involved in my paper, I need, I need a lot of feedback from banks, and I'm not getting as much as I need. Two days later, in my mailbox, Bonnie put a business card and said, with a little note, my mom sits on the board of a community bank in Columbus, Ohio, and sits on the board of a company that specializes in community banks. I reached out to that company, along with a lot of other companies. I put them in my paper, and then again, under the advice of your business department, right here at Sterling, Kathy and Kevin Condit, they said, hey, send that paper to everyone you wrote about. One of the people in that paper was a guy that started a company that was specializing in community banks out of Columbus, Ohio. He was an old guy then, he was 50. I'm about to turn 50. <laughs> and so I roll in for the interview, it goes great. I get the job. And off to Columbus, Ohio I go. Now you think about, folks, you've gotta remember, when opportunity collides with gratitude, energy, and integrity, anything can happen. And so everything I just described, from the boarding school, to coming to America, to grinding my way through here and not being overwhelmed, keeping my head up, counting little victories, all had me loading up a U-Haul with my car and pulling out of town in 1991 to Columbus, Ohio, and for the second time in my life, I'm arriving in a state where I know nobody. I have no connections, I have no handout, but I got a leg up. And I got an attitude that I built from all the fibers, all those different experiences I got to build on. And Believe me, it works like that. So there's none of you sitting here today, if there's A students and you've got it made, congratulations, press on. That's awesome. I wasn't one of you. If there are B and C and other students here, and if there's a part of you that is at all overwhelmed by what am I gonna do, start today in building some of these habits and it'll create, build this fiber in your lives that will allow you to be open to the opportunities that will come your way. Warren Buffett, one of my business idols, has so many great things you can learn from. I still learn from him. If you don't know him, you should know him, and if you do know him, read everything you can about him. One of the things he talks about is hiring. When they hire at Berkshire Hathaway, which by the way is one of the largest publicly traded, most successful stocks in the history of Wall Street, the year I was born, 1967, that stock was $17 a share, and it's over $250,000 per share today. Warren Buffett says when they hire people, they look for three things. They look for intelligence, hard work, and integrity. But if you don't have integrity, the first two don't count. And for those of you sitting here today, no matter what field you want to go into, I'm here to tell you, by grafting away and working away, I'm gonna use my last couple of minutes to say, when I got to um, Columbus, I looked around and I was the youngest at the firm. And I said, how am I gonna add value? And I was sent out to all these divisions and I worked with these, uh, I was the junior assistant to the senior advisors. And as I'd worked with them, I started to put a story together in my head and said, I've gotta add more value. So I went and I took two licenses, two qualifications in our industry that none of them had. And by the end of my second year, I'm doing a night class and a Saturday morning class teaching the senior guys at our firm these licenses because they're thinking, I don't want to go back to school. If you're 50, you don't want to go back to school and take a license. So I figured, I can add value there. I added value and the most senior advisors, instead of the junior ones, were taking me to meetings. By the time I was 27 or 28, I'm in meetings I had no business being in. I'm making presentations I had no business making. But it was baptism by fire and I kept putting myself in that position by just doing simple things. 
By the time I was 29, I was vice president, and by the time I was 31, I was president of a division. We built up that division um, from nothing. Uh, it was a brand new division, and it ended up being the firm um, over the course of about four or five years. We built it up to a $200 million firm, then we converted it to an institutional asset management firm, and I lifted out a division and formed my own company in the spring of 2001, and today I'm happy to tell you it's a billion dollars in assets under management. I'm telling you, create those habits, create those traits, don't be afraid to fail. There are so many of those crossroads. If I allowed the fear of failure to dominate, there's no way I would have taken the next step. Step out into the uncomfortable, um, never stop believing in yourself, and look inside, look at the traits you have that you want to improve on, and certainly look at some of the traits that maybe you need to um, reduce or eliminate. I believe my glass is half full. I've never stopped believing that. It's through the grace of God and great parents. I gotta tell you guys, your glass is half full. The only question you have today is do you know it or not? Believe it, live it, and thanks so much for having me today.